So we are in our last week of a series that we've called Come and See. And so what we've sought to do during the series is to really pull back maybe the things that you thought about Christianity, the, the political things, the argumentative things, the, the things that you get in debates over. And really, let's look at one story in the Bible. Let's look at Jesus calling the disciples. So we are looking at one story. And let's dive into that story and see what Jesus really has for us, because I think what he has for us is all of us just to come and see, not get caught up in all of those other things, all of those other things that we debate over or divide over, but let's just really examine who Jesus is. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at one final story. We're going to look at the uh, two of the disciples of Jesus, what they do after they've experienced Jesus. And what I want to talk about today is moving from living an aspirational faith to an actual faith. Because we all have aspirational goals, don't we? Aspirational Mitch is maybe the best Mitch that has ever existed in the history of the earth. And, you know, I wake up, I, you know, I go to bed in the morning, I say, okay, when I, when I wake up, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up early. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm not going to eat any junk food. I'm going to work out. I'm going to go into my daughter's rooms and I'm going to sing them hymns as they wake up. (laughs) And instead, what happens is I'm awoken to an eight-year-old drop kicking the door 45 minutes before I have to be to work, right? So then I get in the car and I'm frustrated and, and then I hit the red light and then the people don't move at the red light. So then I'm at the red light again. And then all of a sudden, aspirational Mitch is out the window and actual Mitch takes over. And so what does it look like to live an actual faith? As a church, we have aspirational goals as well, right? And, and, and you know that. Um, Darren stated some of them, that we want to be a church that is people helping pe- people experience new life in Christ. And all of that is based on the scripture. And so we take the, the scripture and we say, okay, what are our aspirational goals for what we want to do here? What do we want to accomplish here in this church? What are our aspirational goals? And if you ever hear anything that, that is contrary to scripture, bring it up to us because we want to live by this. And so we have these aspirational goals as well. But sometimes our aspirational goals uh, fail our actual self. Like I'll tell myself, I'm not going to go eat ice cream. I'm not going to eat ice cream. I'm running, I'm working out, I'm doing the good things. I'm not going to eat ice cream. And then I drive by Andy's frozen custard and I say, well, technically it's not ice cream, (laughs) right? We do that. We do that to ourselves. Aspirational Mitch is very different. So we all have spiritual aspirations as well. I think that's probably why you're here. You know, spiritual aspirations. I want to. I want to get to know Jesus better. I I really want to discover, you know, what what God might have for me. I really want to spend time in the Word. I really want to work on my marriage. I really want to to do this. I, I know many people who first start getting in church because they want their kids to have some kind of faith. They aspire for their children to be better than they are. And so we all have these aspirational goals for ourselves. So we have spiritual aspirations, and and what we found is that many people segment their faith. They say, okay, my spiritual life is over here. My personal life is over here. My work life is over here. We kind of segment everything. And so as we go into this story, I want you to notice what two of these disciples do and how they respond and how they turn their aspirational faith into actual faith. Check out what it says here in John chapter one. It says, one of the two 
who heard John speak, that's John the Baptist, who was proclaiming Jesus and, and followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And what happened when he, he found Jesus? He, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and brought him to Jesus. That these disciples, when they first saw Jesus, they brought people to Jesus. That this message of Jesus was so revolutionary, it changed everything. And so I was, I was looking and, and I, was, I was learning a little bit about Andrew earlier. So we can have a couple of pictures of what Andrew might have looked like. These were from about 1,600 years after. And, and so really, this is probably not what Andrew looked like. You could probably imagine Andrew in heaven 1,600 years after he lives, like what picture would picture people paint of you 1,600 years later? And he's probably in heaven right now being like, dude, what did you, ha- did you have to do that with my hair? Like really? He probably had long locks. And, and then there's this other one. Uh, and, and so you're probably like, Andrew's sitting in heaven like, dude, really? You got to paint me like that? And so these disciples did amazing things. They, they went um, after Jesus died, he was buried. He rose from the, from the grave. He taught the disciples. The disciples hung out in Jerusalem together. And what we see is that they actually dispersed. Church history says this, and the book of Acts says this, that they dispersed kind of all over the world. And this is a very fuzzy picture, but you can see from Jerusalem, they really went out about as far as they could go at that time. That this message that they heard changed everything. What was an aspirational faith turned into an actual faith. And and so the story continues in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets, basically saying the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament that they wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, this actual person. And so when the disciples came and saw what they saw impacted so much that they went and they told everyone about it. And so how do we do this? How do we share our faith in a way that's Jesus? What did he say? What has he got for us this morning? I have to do that every time, every time. I love it. So how do we do this? How do we move from from sharing our faith being an aspirational value to an actual value? I, I believe most of us, we want to get to a place where we're we're living bold and living out loud and living our faith. But then when it comes to it, when the rubber hits the road, when we're in that work relationship, it's super difficult. It's incredibly difficult, isn't it? And so what we're going to talk about today might be a little bit different. Today, I'm not going to share with you how to share your faith because the disciples really didn't, right? When I, was, when I was growing up, when I was being discipled, I was given a program. I was given a five-step thing. These are the five things that you say in order to lead somebody to Jesus. That's the way I was raised. Some other people, maybe it's something else, right? Evangelism explosion or maybe a bridge illustration or whatever that Romans road, however you were taught. And what I found is that most people struggle with long, eloquent speeches. But how did the disciples do it? In these two stories, I find it interesting they say five words, we have found the Messiah. That's it. It's hyper-relational after that. Today, I'm going to simply conclude this series by giving us four practical steps that we can implement in our everyday life. Four practical things that we can implement in our, in our everyday life in order to really live out the gospel. I was listening to a sermon by 
a man uh, named Tim Keller. Tim Keller passed earlier this year, and um, super, you know, great, great preacher, um, huge idol of mine. And, and Tim Keller was talking about this time. He was early in his ministry, and he's in New York City, and this man comes to him trying to figure out, how do I live this out? How do I really live out this faith? And this man was an actor. He comes to Tim Keller and says, hey, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how can I live this out in, in my role? And so Tim's like, okay, what do you do? He says, I'm an actor. And, and he's like, okay, how can I help you? He says, well, I, be, I just became a Christian. I, I want to know, you know, what kind of roles can I take? And Tim's like, yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and he continues, he's like, well, well, have you heard of method acting? And Tim Keller's, no, I haven't heard of method acting. Well, he said, well, method acting is in, in the UK. What you do is you, you, um, you act like you're angry, but in America, in the US, you're taught to really get angry. And Tim Keller says, well, that doesn't sound good. So this man says, well, can I method act? And Tim Keller says, well, I don't know. And the moral of the story was Tim Keller realized after being a pastor for years and years that he's taught people how to be disciples in here, but really, how do you live out your faith out there? Pastors, we're really good at this. We're really good at getting a bunch of people in a room and you can hear us talk about spiritual things. But how do we disciple you to live out your faith out there? One of the things that sparked a fire in me a few years ago was I was sitting at an Easter service. I was sitting in the back because I was in charge of all the children's ministry and family ministry going on. And I remember sitting in there. The room was full. The band was, was playing. It was great. It was Easter, right? Everyone's hyped. And I remember thinking, how many people in the room are actually living out their faith every day? How many people in the room are actually operating in the fruit of the Spirit and operating in their spiritual gifts? And just lit a fire in me. How do you move from living an aspirational faith to an actual faith? I think the disconnect for many of us is what happens in here looks very different from what happens in the work conversation during the week. And so what we try to communicate then is we can't, this doesn't communicate in the work setting, in the family setting, in that debate over politics. How does faith come into play there? Because what we're used to is three songs, 40 minutes, two songs, and we're, we're hanging out in the lobby and talking. But how, does, how do you take that and live that out and have those conversations? Because most of us can't, can't do this. We're not going to get up and speak for 45 minutes in front of, front of our work friends. And so how do I share my faith when I don't have 30 minutes to lecture? How do you integrate faith and life and work? How do you, how do you let the gospel transform your work? So today we're going to talk about four ways the gospel can transform your daily life. And at the end, I want you to just take one and make a commitment to living out your faith in one of these areas. So here's the first one. The gospel is an inner anchor without which life will sink you. The gospel is an inner anchor without which life will sink you. We need this anchor without which life just bears on us. Ephesians 3, 19 says this. It says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Something that you, that you are, this is who you are, that you are filled with the fullness of God. Do you feel that? Do you know that? Do you operate in that? 
there's a, a story by uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's a famous um, pastor. We, we learned about him in seminary. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, before going into ministry, was actually a doctor. And what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that, that most doctors, when they go into the profession, they, they don't necessarily go into the profession to help people. They go into the profession to build themselves up, to really make a difference in their family. Most people go into that profession for the income or the money. And so um, what, what he saw was that in this profession as a physician, that most people in that profession, that became their identity, that they, they were a doctor. And so he famously said this. He said that, that most doctors are born a man and die a doctor, that that's what should be written on their tombstone, that it so much became their identity. And this is true for a lot of people, right? Normally those white-collar jobs, if you're a lawyer, if you're a, a doctor, um, if you're an athlete, professional athlete, a lot of athletes struggle, right? When the game is over, when you retire, what do you do next? What's going to happen next? I think for a lot of us, for me, I find a lot of identity in being a good parent, and so when the, parent, when the kids leave the house, what is your identity for being a good husband, for being a good wife? What happens when that spouse dies? What, what happens in those situations? Your career goes so far into your, your soul that success or failure tends to define you. And so if, when you are successful, what we found is when you're successful, it goes to your head. That when you're really successful, the most highly successful people in the world, they tend to start to speak into things that maybe they're not so successful in, right? We find this with wealthy people. Wealthy people t- tend to start to dabble in areas because they were successful in one area. They might be successful in a bunch of other areas. And so success, when we're successful, it goes to our heads. We think that we're better than we are. And when we fail, it goes to our hearts, and it starts to destroy our identity. It destroys our self-worth. Uh, ben Nugent wrote this. He's a writer. He wrote this in the New York Times in, a, in an op-ed, and uh, it's called The Upside of Distraction. And when he was struggling with this, this writer's block, he said, When good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. And for this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. I lost the ability to cheerfully integrate how much I liked what I had written to see what was actually on the page rather than what I wanted to see or what I feared to see. Has anyone ever been in this situation where you just, your, your work or your life is so much of your identity. You can use that in every area of your life where you tend to build so much on it. You build your identity on it. He says, I, I made the quality of my work the measure of my work. And this is what the gospel gives you. The gospel gives you a deep identity, a deep purpose outside of work. That it is an inner anchor without which life and everything around it will sink you. That's what makes us different in the workplace. That's what makes us different at home. That's what makes us different in every single area of our life, in school, in profession, whatever it is. The gospel is the inner anchor and we will not be sunk by the world. The second thing 
is the gospel redeems all work. We know that that work is a, a great servant, but never a master. And the gospel redeems all work. Luther had this thing that when he read in the, in the scriptures, when he read in the Old Testament, in uh, his commentary specifically on Psalms, he mentions this a few times. When he read passages that said things like, God feeds you, or God sustains you, or, or God does things for you, he would ask the question, but how? Okay, God, uh, God, thank you for sustaining me. Thank you for blessing me. We, we maybe don't get that in our, our society right now because we, are, we tend to build things for ourselves. But if you can imagine in an agricultural society, they're so dependent on God for the rain and all that. And so it, he would always ask this question, okay, God sustains you, but, but how? And so he would go into this and he would say, okay, the milk that I drink, was pasteurized that was uh, that was then um, a cow was then milked, and a farmer had to milk that cow and so all across the spectrum, God is at work in all of those all of those things in all of those fields and so what Luther would say is that all work is god 's work that all work is god 's work the snow plower, the cleaner, the humblest job is noble it 's dignified it 's all god 's work in luther 's day. In the 1600s, the, the priest and the, the nuns and the, the pope, those were the dignified positions and everything else was a kind of a class system, right? Where everything else, they were just working so that the priest, the pope, whoever could do the most important job. And, and so what Luther was, was getting at is he was saying that all work is God's work and people began to see this gospel spread virally all over Europe. Because why? Because people began to see that their work, no matter what it was, mattered. Colossians chapter 3 says this. It says, whatever you do, whatever you do, not just some things that you do, but whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. See, see we put a lot of emphasis right now on jobs that are highly skilled, Right? Uh, when, when I'm talking to kids who are in college, they want these highly skilled jobs. Uh, in my, my work and my full-time job, we interview a lot of college students who are just coming out. Surprisingly, these college students want to come out of college. And they want to make $100,000 year one. They're going from Chick-fil-A making $16 an hour to making six figures a year. I don't know what we're teaching these kids, that they're worthy or something. I don't know. We're teaching them something. And so they want to come in. They want to make a lot of money. They, they also, they want to be highly skilled. They want to make a lot of money and they also want to do work that matters. I want to make an impact on the world. I want to make a difference in the world. I want to do something that matters. It brings a a lot of status and a lot of change in the world. But what we don't see is, is people that want to push a broom. We don't see a lot of people who want to fix a driveway or fix brakes or clean a house, right? Or feed people or serve people. We don't see a lot of those, those professions, and those professions are not really highly sought after, and they're, they're not highly promoted. But without those things, without the guy to fix my brakes, without the woman to clean my house, without the person to fix the driveway and the roads, you know what happens? We die. We need those things in our society. And that, that's what I think God is talking about here. He's saying, whatever you do, if you're milking the cow, if you're pasteurizing the milk, if you're selling the milk at the store, all work is God's work. So God is redeeming all your work. 
I would love you to, to maybe reframe the way that you're thinking about work. Work isn't just a thing you do to do your ministry, but work is your ministry. Your work is ministry. It's important. All work is God's work, whatever you do. And church then, what is amazing about church is church is the only place, maybe in the world, where you get these things together. I was thinking about this earlier this week, where you get white-collar jobs and blue-collar jobs, and the servant and the CEO, you get them all in the same room together, and there's equality in here that is like no other place on earth. I was thinking about this. I was like, well, well, maybe sports, right? Like, Everyone kind of cheers for sports teams. But yeah, but if you and I were to go to sports games, the person who's making, if we're going to the Broncos game, I don't know why we would do that right now. But if we were to go, the CEO is sitting on a different level than the person making $16 an hour, right? It's different. The church is the only place where the blue collar and the white collar get together and they say, that is my mission. That is my mission. They're living on mission together. The Bible lifts up all work and says that all work is God's work. And so there, there's a story about an airline pilot who, who just came to know Jesus, and this airline pilot is trying to be missional in the way that he works. So he's asking, okay, you know, what should I do? How do I, how do I be a Christian in my workplace? How do I be a Christian and an airline pilot? You know, should I get on the intercom while we're all flying and saying, hey, if you die tonight, do you know where you're going to go? Like, that just freaks everyone out. Should I hand out tracks as people come by? You're probably getting fired. And so what is the best way to be a Christian airline pilot? Just land the plane. Just land the plane. Do, do a good job. Be the best airline pilot in the whole fleet, and you'll earn the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. What does it mean? Just lay in the plane because all work is God's work. You are serving God. The third thing here is that the, the gospel gives you a moral compass. The gospel gives you a moral compass. So we, we talked about the gospel gives you an inner anchor without which life will sink you, but the gospel also gives you a moral compass, which way to go. As the Holy Spirit works in you and you start to produce the fruit of the Spirit, you start to look different and act different and your convictions are different from everywhere else. In a society where we start to see cutting corners more and more, when in a society where people are not engaging in the work in society, where we're constantly hearing stories of corruption. And what I've noticed is the stories of corruption have always happened over time, but the stories of corruption I'm hearing now are like, well, does it really matter? Like, ultimately, it was a good thing. So does the corruption really matter? And so what we've noticed is that corruption has happened, but we're maybe excusing it a little bit more than we had. There was a Gallup uh, poll done recently. Uh, have you, anyone ever heard of quiet quitters? People who quit their job, but they don't really quit their job. They're still being paid, but they're, they're, they're pulling the full time, but, but they're not really engaging in work. Uh, Gallup came up with, it, came up with this uh, not too long ago. The statistic was quiet quitters make up 50% of the U.S. workforce, probably more. 50% of people, so half of you, I know we're a church, right? So maybe a quarter of us, not this, a quarter of us are, have quiet quit in our job where we show up, we check in, we, we click, click the boxes, but we're not really engaged. We're not doing the job that they're paying us to do. We've quiet, quiet quit. 
This is why the government keeps regulating. Uh, this is why there are more and more laws and more and more laws because we know that, that people are not moral because people don't have a moral compass. In the end, though, Christians live different. We represent a different economic society. We have different goals. We have a different moral compass. And I believe that you can't do any job as a Christian without your Christianity, without your faith shining light on that. I don't believe that you could be a teacher in a school and, and not have your faith shine on that. Because ultimately, you're going to get down to the, the crux of the question is, what are these kids for? Why am I training them? Why am I teaching them? Why am I spending time with them? What is education for? What are human beings for? And that informs the way that you teach. If you're a mechanic, right? Anyone ever heard of an unethical mechanic? Right? Your, your morals start to define what you do. If you're an engineer, you create great, beautiful things for the betterment of society. You show up because your compass is different. And as Christians, we, we live different because we are not saved by our morality, but we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace, which means that when I go and I talk to my neighbor, I do not assume that I am better than him. I do not assume I'm a better parent than him. I do not assume I'm a smarter person than him. I do not assume that I have it all together because my salvation is not based off of how good a parent I am. My salvation is based off of God's grace. So when we talk to people, and I see this online all the time, where Christians just assume that we're better people, but really what our faith does is we put our, ourselves in position of servant. Why? Because our Savior put himself in position of servant, and we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by grace. And so we communicate that. There's no su- superiority because Jesus saved me while I was still sinning. While I was in the middle of it, in the muck, Jesus pulled me out. And so our story to our community, to our neighbors, to our work friends, to our family is not, I'm better than you. Our story is, I was saved by grace. Our story is, I don't deserve it, but Jesus gives it to me. And so as we contemplate the role of grace in our lives, we can't ignore the fact that so many people have yet to establish a meaningful connection with Christians in their lives. Um, Christianity Today, a couple years ago, put out this survey that one in five people do not know a Christian. One in five people do not. So 20% of people do not know a Christian. You're like, well, that's crazy. That's because you know Christians. (laughs) One in five people, one in five non-Christians do not know a Christian. Even worse, six in 10 people do not have a relationship with one. 60% of non-Christians in our culture do not have a relationship with a Christian. Why? Because we've failed to do what these disciples did, which is to go and to tell. So leads to my last point. So the gospel is proclaimed through your gifts, your abilities, and your words. Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, this is, this is uh, Jesus, right? He's with the disciples. He's after he rose from the dead. At this point, he's like walking through walls and having fish breakfast with his disciples. And, and so he gives them this, this kind of final teaching. And so the disciples asked this question, Lord, 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, Lord, are you going to like start ruling over Rome as the, the king of Israel, the king of kings? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power to what? Power to be social media warriors. Power to critique other Christians. No, he says, power, and you will be my, uh, when, you, when you receive the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The problem that I have with church is that I believe this. I believe that you have power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The the struggle that I have with church is that we don't do it. That we have a bunch of Lamborghinis sitting in here and nobody going out and really driving the car. You have the power to do this. You have the power to do this. There's a a famous quote that I've heard a a ton and a a bunch. And if you love this quote, I'm sorry, I'm going to destroy it. St. Francis of Assisi famously said, preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. Anyone ever heard this? Okay. If this is your life first, I'm sorry. St. Francis never said that for one, two, the gospel is necessarily, necessarily it's verbal. The gospel is verbal. The gospel requires your words. Romans chapter 10, how will they know if nobody told them? And I think the problem that we have in church right now is that we've bought into this idea that people will know that we're Christians if we're good enough people. Which I, I like the, the spirit behind it, that yeah, you're, you should practice what you preach but I think the problem is we bought too much into this idea that people are just going to know Jesus because we're good people and they're going to see my life and they're going to turn to Jesus. No, they're not. How, they, how will they hear unless you tell them? Uh, 82% of Christians or 82% of people would come to church if a friend invited them, but 2% of Christians have ever made the ask. Three quarters of non-Christians have ever been invited to church. The problem is, is we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. And I understand why we we don't talk about it. We don't want to be this like, we don't want to come across as religious fanatics. We We don't want to lose our reputation. We don't want people to think poorly about us. But your identity is not in what people think about you. Your identity is in Jesus. I was convicted this week. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit does that, right? I was convicted this week. I was, I was sitting with this nonprofit and they were praying and uh, this, this uh, person prayed and I, I wrote it down. He said, God, we know that there are more people out there that want to hear your gospel than there are those to tell them. It ruined my whole week. There are more people out there that want to hear the gospel than there are people to tell them. There, there are more people who want to hear the gospel, but we make excuses, right? Well, it's Denver, like it's post-Christian society, right? People really don't want to hear that. They want me to interrupt their lives. There are more people out there that want to hear the gospel than there are people to tell them. This is backed up by scripture. Jesus says, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I'm not asking you to go door to door. I'm not asking you to memorize a presentation or to take a class. I'm simply asking you to be consistent. 
Just be consistent in your life. How do you do this? We could do many things. Uh, in church, I've seen many things done where you kind of like glue on evangelism to the church. Things like evangelism explosion, which is great. Things like alpha, where you come and you, you talk about the, the essentials of the faith. All those things are great. But we can do all of those things. We can do any number of programs, and we can never build a culture of evangelism in our church. So I remember in seminary, I read a book um, by a guy named Michael Green, and he was talking about how the gospel spread in the early church. How did the gospel spread in the early church? It wasn't by people bringing people to hear a great preacher or hear a great band or sending YouTube videos. None of that stuff existed. What happened in the early church is just simply relational ministry, sitting with people and sharing the truth of what Jesus did in your life. It's going from being aspirational to being consistent, living out your life and your faith in real time. So what does that look like practically? What does that look like practically? I love what First Thessalonians 2, 8 says. It says, uh, Paul's writing to this church and he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves because you had become very dear to us. See, those things go together. If Jesus has given you any kind of joy or happiness, share that. Share that. It's only natural that you share with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, the things that are making you happy and joyful. So I want to ask you this very pointed question this morning. Who in your life is following Christ because of you following Christ? How can you talk about this? How can you talk about this? A couple, just a couple practical examples. Let's say you're talking to a friend and she shares that she's struggling in her marriage. And so you just invite her and her husband over to dinner and you invite them to just study a book together, a book together on marriage. And during that, that time when you're re- maybe reading that book, you, you simply share, hey, the center of my marriage is Jesus. And I would, I would love to share that with you. Would you like to come to church with me and hear more about that? 80% of people would accept that invitation. Let's say tomorrow morning you're at work and somebody says, hey, what did you do this weekend? Well, I, I went to church with my family. It's, it's kind of an important part of my life. I, I heard a sermon on forgiveness. I heard a sermon on grace and just wondering, what, what, like, what does that mean to you? That's not intrusive. That's not five points. That's simply sharing your life and being consistent. And so how do, you, how do you do that? How do you move from an aspirational faith to an actual faith? Here's a couple things. Darren mentioned the first one. It's simply the this, this say yes, getting involved in something. If you uh, want to serve here, there are a variety of things from kind of one-time, one-off things like stage decorations or things that we have going on the property to greeters who are just serving every week. And what I found in serving is that when I'm alongside other people who are serving, it, it increases my faith. It pushes me further that maybe the best way to get plugged in and held accountable is just to start serving every week or every other week or once a month, whatever works for you. Second thing is today, we're actually going out right after church and we're knocking on the doors of some of our neighbors and simply asking the question, how can we pray for you? 
That might be a massive step of faith. That may not be quite where you're at right now, but maybe make a challenge to do that the next time that we do that. The third thing is tonight, right here, we're gonna do a prayer night and we're just gonna, we're gonna pray. And so maybe this afternoon you just reflect on who is that person in my life that I need to share my faith with and bring them tonight and we're just gonna, we're gonna pray for them and we're gonna pray for you for boldness. And the last thing is, is just be available to what the Holy Spirit might do in your relationships this week. And so before, I just wanna put up a couple things here on the screen. I, I, I challenge you to maybe pick one of these things that you can live out this week. And so what I wanna do is I just wanna take a couple minutes and I want you to, to pray, to really dive in. And I want you to ask God these two questions, right? Or I, wanna, I want you to pray these two things. God, where do I need to take steps to follow you in the four things that we talked about today? What has God convicted you of today? And the second thing as you close is, Lord, make my faith actual, not aspirational. Go ahead and take a minute to pray.